On this episode of Hoosology, we welcome founder of Girl Talk Sports TV LLC, Christina Williams. She brings great insight regarding how the WNBA influenced the social justice movement and the future of the WNBA moving forward. Then Matt and I discussed the league opening up on December 22nd, as well as the trade rumors for the Pelicans' Drew Holiday. And now our interview with Christina Williams. We now welcome onto the show founder of Girl Talk Sports TV LLC, Christina Williams. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Justin and Matt. Such a pleasure to be here today. So, Christina, um, just through what's been going on in the nation, um, I kind of want to start this this interview in terms of um, the WNBA players and the Atlanta Dream um, and the the Senate race that's you know going on now with with Kelly Loeffler and just how they were involved in kind of uh, bringing that attention to light in terms of social justice um, and right. this day in terms of what we're seeing with um, if everything goes smoothly with uh, President elect Joe Biden I just want to ask you in terms of players speaking out can you guys give us some context as to the WNBA players really being the first to be on the front of social justice, even before Colin Kaepernick, can you kind of give some background as to why they were um, first to really speak out about these issues and also why they're not given the credit? Absolutely. So, you know, the women of the WNBA have always been at the forefront of social justice issues. One example of this was about four years ago, um, women of the Minnesota Lynx, namely Maya Morrison and Augustus, they led a, a protest by wearing um, T-shirts uh, after the death of Philando Castile um, and Alton Sterling. And I would say four years ago, actually, WNBA actually didn't back the players in terms of when they wanted to stand up for those issues because the team was fine, the players were fine for um, you know that act of protest. And four years later, here we are again. And, you know, the death of um, George Floyd kind of like sparked out, you know, massive protests. But we've seen something different happen in the WNBA and that um, Kathy Engelbert and the WNBA Association and WNBPA, they dedicated the entire 2020 season to Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name campaign. And so in the last four years, we've really seen a growth in terms of the league backing the players and their um, social justice initiatives. And um, obviously the league is 80% black women, many LGBTQ. Um, and so I feel like in that sense, we don't really see a lot of media coverage in terms of what these women have been doing um, in terms of social justice because of that. Um, equity and coverage in terms of women in sports. Um, women in sports only receive uh, 4% of all media coverage. And when you break those numbers down, um, WBA lack exposure for so many years, but we've seen such a change, especially this season, um, with uh, getting more exposures, more games added to national broadcast. We've seen um, the WBA get more sponsorship dollars in. And so I think that with the lack of exposure in the past, that you know, there wasn't any visibility in terms of what the women were doing. Um, a huge win for Maya Moore, who took two seasons off in the prime of her career to dedicate her, um, you know, her time to criminal justice reform and seeing that Jonathan Irons um, conviction case overturned. So, you know, just major things happened this season to put all eyes on the women of the WNBA. Um, but like I just said, like, I think in the past, we didn't see that because 
because of um, you know league is predominantly black black women of the LGBTQ community. And then to address your question about the the race Senate in Georgia, that Senate seat, um, as we know, Kelly Loeffler is the co-owner of the Atlantic Dream. And so many of the women of the WNBA outside of social justice and criminal justice reform, um, they focus on voter voting rights and voting suppression. Um, namely, uh, Renee Montgomery, who's a part of the Atlanta Dream, she teamed up with uh, LeBron James to help with his More Than a Vote initiative. And part of that was to um, just voice their opinion about Kelly Loeffler, who opposed Black Lives Matter, one of the only owners of within the sports league to kind of like be very vocal about being against black lives matter and you know it's kind of ironic because the league especially her team is full of black women and so just to have a, a an owner openly you know oppose that when the league itself this season said we stand with the players is kind of off and so you know the players um they focused during the season within the bubble, um, just, you know, vote Warnock <laughs> and trying to to help, you know, get him more votes and, and sponsorship money, I guess. And so, I mean, we've seen what happened just now. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden is the projected winner of the 2020 presidential race. And so um, now the focus is on trying to get that Senate, right? And so you know, the women of the WNBA are focused on um, just, raising awareness around that Georgia seat and trying to not only get Kelly Loeffler out of the Senate, but also um, a lot of them are speaking up about wanting to get her out of the WNBA league as an owner. Um, and, you know, several people have come up and said, well, I'll buy her share of the team. Um, she has openly come out and said that she's not giving up her share of the team. And so um, just, you know, just seeing that, and then you see other owners around the league, like the Seattle Storm owners, who's also like an all-female-led ownership group who endorsed Biden-Harris. And so, um, yeah, the WNBA is just like, I feel like it's kind of like showing a reflection of the real world and like what people are feeling and, and going through right now. And, you know, these women are using their platform to just raise that awareness. What did you make of the presentation of the WNBA in the bubble as a whole? Um, I think there was a stark difference between how um, the WNBA was presented and the NBA was presented just in terms of kind of the aesthetics of the presentation in terms of the video board and just kind of mm-hmm. um, just to get up the kind of flashing lights and kind of like the pizzazz that the NBA had. Uh, but yeah, I for a positive on the WNBA in terms of presentation, we did, in my opinion, see ESPN, their television partner, take more of an active role in promoting the league and improving their presentation. And this is something I've talked Matt's ear off for years about just how (laughs) I've thought ESPN has been terrible in terms of their television coverage with, with um, the WNBA. So I guess my question to you is moving forward, do you think, this was an aberration just because of we're in a pandemic or do you think we'll see more of a strengthening of the partnership between the WNBA and ESP in terms of uh, the television network actually promoting the league and taking it seriously? Um, I definitely think that we'll see more of the backing of ESPN um, mainly because we've seen that with the more exposure and amplification of the league, that the ratings were up 
and the WNBA this season. A lot of sports leagues this season reported that ratings and viewership was down, whereas the WNBA really took advantage of this season, and they were able to increase their year-over-year ratings numbers. And so I think going into next season, ESPN will definitely, you know, keep that momentum going in terms of bringing more exposure to the league. I also think that viewership increased because the WNBA had the Twitter partnership, uh, which helped uh, in terms of, like, social media and getting those broadcast numbers up, and so we'll definitely see it. And then in terms of presentation, to answer that question about how they presented, you know, the season, obviously it couldn't be as fancy as the NBA because they don't have that kind of money. But um, I think Kathy Engelbert, she's just one year into her um, role as the commissioner of the league, and she's been dealing with so many different things. Uh, she, the CBA in January, she handled the virtual draft in April, and then she had to put together a condensed season. And I think she did a very great job um, before the players got into the bubble. I know that they had several discussions with the association and um, there were a bunch of non-negotiables on the table um, prior to the season happening about what they wanted to do. Um, and then part of that was mainly like the Black Lives Matter. So Angel McCautry kind of pitched the Say Her Name jerseys and had Brianna Taylor on the back. And we saw the NBA mimic that and, you know, and, they, and kind of mimic that. And then with the court, Brianna Stewart, the Seattle Storm, um, the 2020 uh, finals MVP. She pitched the idea of having Black Lives Matter on the court, and then we saw the NBA mimic that as well. And so WNBA players this season, in terms of presentation, they definitely were at the forefront, and we've seen that the NBA uh, kind of, like, mimic that sentiment as well. I think they did really well this season. Um, there were zero positive COVID cases in the bubble. And so I think not only the WNBA, but the NBA, they handled that really, really well, um, just having this smooth sailing season. Uh, I know in the beginning, when the players first arrived to the bubble, there were some small complaints about um, the living quarters and food, but they were able to, you know, rectify that and also get more sponsorships in terms of DoorDash being a sponsor and things like that to um, make sure that the player experience within the bubble was great. And, you know, a lot of the players, they didn't have much complaints after that first week. And so I think that the WNBA presented this season really well. Um, in terms of marketing strategy, in terms of presentation. They did a really great job. And as I said, viewership was up this season um, compared to last season. And so we've seen that the WNBA gained a lot more fans. And so I definitely think moving forward, the broadcasting partners, ESPN, ABC, um, they definitely will invest in that. Christina, I wanted to follow up about the ratings with you. This is, again, something Justin and I have talked about quite a bit on previous episodes. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the WNBA kind of being that anomaly over the course of this pandemic and that their ratings actually have gone up. Uh, and you mentioned, right. of course, the partnership with Twitter and everything. Um, yeah. what, what else do you think is the cause for the viewership going up here? I mean, is it is it that there's kind of this perfect marriage of progressivism, activism, and Twitter, because Twitter's kind of the hub for that, uh, at least this yeah. year, it seems. Um, do you think that's the main cause, or are there, are there other things that, uh, that maybe, maybe I'm not considering? Um, I think that everything you said is absolutely true. <laughs> um, pandemic probably had some play into it. You know, more people are at home. Um, can't really get access to games. And so, you know, a lot of people are spending more and more time um, on their phones and their homes. And 
I also think that the season um, happening same time as the NBA is happening, it definitely probably helped. Although the NBA ratings went down this year compared to last year. Um, but also, I just feel like we saw that the, the women of the WNBA were at the forefront of social justice. And so that in itself brought more attention to the league, um, especially when you have a player like Maya Moore and getting that conviction overturned with Jonathan Irons. And then, like, George Floyd incident happened in Minnesota and seeing that the Minnesota franchise, the Timberwolves and Lynx, how, you know, what the work they did, they did in that community as well. And so... I just really think that all of those things played into the viewership going up. But also um, the WNBA is really huge in a digital and social space. And so that could definitely help the viewership, but also the availability of the players. Um, the 2020 draft was one of the most biggest drafts in the WNBA history. We've, we've seen um, players like Kennedy Carter, Sabrina Inescu um, get drafted this year. That's probably and so, like, you know, just the marketability of the players um, and the expectation of the rookie class coming in definitely drew more attention to the league. As we know, college basketball stopped abruptly because of COVID. And so mm-hmm. there was no, like, Final Four or anything like that. So um, a lot of people wanted to see these women play at, at, and how they would transition into, you know, the professional space without having a Final Four or training camp. And so... Just the curiosity, I guess, of that probably also drew in some college fans who, because we all know that from college to WNBA, there's some sort of disconnect in terms of getting those fans to carry over. And so I feel now more than ever, women's basketball is grown in that sense. When you see a player like Sabrina, who's kind of like one of those once-in-a-lifetime players that we've seen in terms of marketability and just Mm -hmm. talent, and so just that alone, like we've seen on traffic that her jersey sold out in the first few seconds that it went up for pre-order and, and she signed with Nike. And so, you know, you just see that uh, just more uh, media outlets are getting interested in covering the WNBA compared to last year. Uh, a lot of big publications are now creating WNBA verticals um, to get more coverage. We've seen last year the launching of W Slam launched last year. Um, highlight House of Highlights started their their women's sports channel. Highlight her. Uh, just different ball is life created ball is life women's basketball and so we just see like this crossover of coverage in the digital space and as well and so I think that plays into um, the coverage and and more fans and gaining more momentum. Awesome. Yeah. And speaking of that momentum, I mean, do you think that, you know, with next year being and next season being in a non-election year, I mean, passions are high in an election Mm -hmm. year, especially towards activism and things like that. Do you think that the WNBA, like, does the outlook look good to you that they'll be able to kind of ride the momentum and, and, you know, push for even higher ratings next season? I mean, social justice definitely played a key factor in more visibility to the league because, we saw that the women were more vocal about certain issues. I think that that work is never going to stop. Um, like the, they've always been at the forefront, but this is like not just taking advantage of the opportunity because it's their, it's their way of life. And the players have always been, been about like raising awareness and to those issues. I think when we look at next year, you know, there's, it's not going to be an election year, but it's projected to be, an Olympic year, so players are getting excited about that. 
Um, I know Kathy Engelbert said on a call to media um, that there may be a Commissioner's Cup and All-Star game for the WNBA because of COVID, the All-Star game was actually canceled this year. And so lots of different things to look forward to, to bring more viewers and get more fans um, into the women's game. The WNBA has also created um, different programs to get young girls and youth into basketball. And so the work is just never stopping to grow the game and to gain new fans and to market it better. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I've seen personally as someone who covers the WNBA and all season is just more sponsorship dollars. The w, I mean, not the WNBA, but women's sports in general only receive 1% of all sponsorship dollars. So if you don't have any sponsorship dollars, then there's definitely going to be a disconnect and, like, pretty more visibility. Mm. And so just seeing the WNBA partner with beauty brands and launching different campaigns with different companies who um, really have never covered the league, just to cross over and gain more of an audience has definitely been great to see uh, as well. Because I think that these women deserve to be covered equally. Um, they're talented. They're versatile, and they deserve the coverage. And so that's why I created Girls Talk Sports TV as well, really as a platform to do that, to amplify the women of the WNBA, to tell their stories, um, and to give them that 365-day coverage like the NBA guys get. Christina, I want to ask you about the <clears throat> action on the court, and specifically um, Sabrina and Eskew's debut. Um, highly touted. Um, unfortunately, she did get hurt. Um, what did she make of just how the season unfolded from a um, purely basketball standpoint? Um, just from the, the male perspective, we saw a lot of players have to get acclimated without not having fans there. So, uh, we, we saw a higher level of scoring on the male side of things. In terms of the WNBA side of things, did you find that the, a lot of the players preferred not having fans there for purely from a basketball standpoint in terms of not having to deal with like um, the fans being close to the court. I know that was a preferability of, of the men's side, or do you think the, the WNBA, they missed a fan interaction in terms of having um, just their fans in the arena? Right. Well, I know definitely when the season first started, I mean, basketball is a mental game just as much as is a physical game. And, the fans definitely bring that aspect to it in terms of it bringing the energy level. Um, a lot of players in the season first started, they said that it was weird, but then towards the middle and end of the season, they just got used to it and just focused and locked in. They knew that the fans were watching on, on television, on the computers, tablets, wherever they could get the games. And so, um, of course, that fan aspect of it sucks because um, the WNBA relies heavily on its fans to try, you know, the dollars. And so, and, and the fan experience. And so the WNBA, because, you know, fans couldn't be there necessarily in person. I know the NBA did, uh, you know, they had fans join in via like Zoom or something like that. And the WNBA didn't have that. So I feel like the fan experience could have been um, done a little bit better within the, within the WNBA. I also feel like maybe they could have had more media members there or content creators that were independent to, you know, kind of give that behind the scenes access like the NBA had. The NBA invited um, a number of media people there to be, to live in the bubble throughout the season. And so you kind of were able to get different content and like the behind the scenes views for that fan experience to enhance it. And so I think that it could have definitely been better in terms of the fan experience. I know that um, the league 
uh, recently partnered with Facebook Oculus. So maybe next season, the fan experience, depending on where we are with COVID, um, you know, that will be a little bit better as well. Uh, but, you know, it's, I feel like this season, because it was the first ever season in a wobble and everything like that, um, they definitely did a great job. But, of course, things have definitely could have been better. Uh, final question for you. In terms of next season, where do you see the had to guess the projected timeline of when um, the next season of the WNBA would start, just considering um, a lot of its players, they play overseas when the season's, um, when the WNBA season, WNBA season's not taking place. Do you think that might play a factor in terms of when the 2021 season would resume? Or do you think that the league would want to keep the current timeline um, as it always has? Well, you know, you just mentioned about the women who have to play overseas. Just want to applaud the women of WBA because they play all year round. And I know some of the NBA guys are just getting used to it. I know the NBA is projecting to start uh, December, around December 22nd. And so a lot of players on the NBA side are complaining. But I'm like, these women have to play all year round every single year. They do their WNBA season and then they go overseas. Um, and as you said, yeah, many of them will be coming back home around April, May. And so usually the WNBA starts around the second week of May. Um, but of course, Kathy Engelbert on a media call, she said to us that, you know, she would always consider you know, what the, what the CDC is saying and the science before they can, like, start to make a schedule. And so, and also next year is an Olympic year. And so usually with an Olympic year and a projected all-star game and commissioner's cup, that's just a lot. And so I feel like the league is still trying to work that out because um, usually during an Olympic year, um, there's usually a pause for a month in a WNBA. And so the league hasn't really said much to us, the media members, about, when the when next season would start, I think the timeline just depends on where we are in terms of COVID, whether there's um, vaccines being made, different things like that. Um, and I know on the NBA side, I know yesterday they sent out a survey about the fan experience, and so the I know the NBA is trying to get fans back in the seats for uh, games coming up next season. And so you know the WNBA has been really quiet about that part of it, but I. We just have to wait for them to give us more information. Christina, thank you very much for joining us. Please plug um, where we can find you on social media and then any future projects that um, our listeners um, should look out for um, either the end of this year or um, end of 2021. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me first and foremost. Again, this conversation was very great. Um, and you can find me at Christina Williams. That's with a K-H, not a C-H. And um, you can follow Girls Talk Sports TV at girlstalksports.tv on Instagram. And I also have a podcast that's dedicated to the women of the WNBA. It's called Kicking It with Christina, where I have candid conversations with some of the biggest athletes in the league. We've had Cheryl Swoops. Erica Hamby, the two-time sixth woman of the year in the league, uh, Natasha Clout, Renee Montgomery, different players stop by and chat with me. So definitely check that out on Spotify as well. And again, thank you guys for having me um, on your show today. Thanks, Christina. Uh, we appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much again. Yeah, thank, thank you, Christina. You. Have a great day, guys. Welcome to another episode of Hootsology. I am Justin Goodrum, joined by Matt Thomas. What's up, man? 
What's up, man? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, man. Good. Um, I can't really complain since we're going to get kind of a early Christmas present in terms of the NBA actually starting on uh, Christmas week. That's been made official. So I can't I don't really have any complaints, to be honest. So excited. So excited. We get to see what a Christmas tip off looks like. Dolly, dolly. Um, on today's show, we're going to discuss the season tipping off during Christmas week. Um, we're also going to discuss the New Orleans Pelicans um, discussing trading Drew Holiday. Um, we're also going to discuss the league parameters in terms of how they're going to uh, kick this new season off. Um, and then we're going to um, discuss some comments from LeBron James in terms of uh, his disapproval of uh, the, the season starting out so quickly. But, man, um, let's hop into it now and, and discuss this season beginning. This is something we talked about last week, and it, it came to fruition um, as the recording of this podcast. And I'm just going to read you this uh, tweet from Sham Sherna um, of Stadium Sports and The Athletic. Um, he stated that the NBA Players Association has voted um, tentatively, tentatively excuse me, to approve the NBA's proposal for the 2021, um, the 2020-2021, say that three times fast, um, <laughs> season starting December 22nd. And they're going to play a 72-game season um, to tip off Christmas week. Um, and then it goes a little bit into detail here um, that the NBA plans to open arenas to 25 and to 50 percent capacity. Um for this season, which I find very interesting. And then um, later a tweet from Woj discussing um, the NBA PA um, holding calls um, to discuss um, perhaps starting camps December 1st. So Matt, I want to ask you particularly with these, what's going on with COVID now Um, cases are spiking all over the country. And yet the NBA is talking about having fans at, (laughs) at this capacity here. Um, at 25 to 50%, which is pretty large. And there's two things at play here in my mind. One, no matter what the NBA does, they're at the behold of the, the country and the, the, the state legislatures of these NBA teams. So I guess I ask you, is this even possible to start the season with 25 to 50% capacity? Is that even a thing that the NBA can pull off, considering we're we're, we're spiking in, in the COVID cases? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I we just saw last night if if you caught it, Notre Dame rushing the field when they beat Clemson. Oh no, I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> and actually, a lot of NBA player, even LeBron James, we have another thing to talk about of his later. But uh, we're talking about you know we can have fans rushing you know, the field, but we can't have our fans in the arena. Come on, shaking my head, you know, things like that. Yeah. So I think the players definitely sound on board with it. You're right in that, you know, a state that's more restrictive or or has been at least in say like a California where three NBA, I'm sorry, four NBA franchises are, you know, it's, it's going to be a little bit different, potentially uh, maybe even a bubble type feel if, if they're not even, keen on allowing 25% capacity. Um, so it's going to be different from state to state. I mean, right now our, our beloved New Mexico Lobo football team is having to play all of their games on the road because they can't host games here at university stadium because of state guidelines. So you're right. It, it is a very interesting dynamic. I think as we move along and I, I have no Intel on this, but I think with things cooling down, 
from the election, potentially, maybe knock on wood, if things cool down, um, you know, I, I do think things will loosen up on this. I do think over time, the, the second wave of COVID has to come down at some point. And that may happen to fall right along the line of, of Christmas break around that time frame where, yeah, maybe we're not starting with 50% arenas as that, uh, that Shams tweet mentioned, but maybe we're starting at 25% for the first month of the season and then ramping up from there. I, I can see that as a very realistic possibility. Um, but I, I definitely am someone who has been, uh, as you know, and as the listeners have known, if, if they've been catching up on past episodes, uh, you know, I, I've been a little bit more on the side of like, things are going to open up. Eventually we do have to open up this country just in general, but, and, and that'll kind of trickle down to the NBA among all the sports leagues. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts on this? Um, do could you see it being more a situation where maybe it's, it's like a bubble scenario, like a traveling bubble, quote unquote, since we know they are, you know, playing in their home arenas. Could you see that happening for a few months before we get the fans in? I think, Matt, the league, and I think a lot of states share your sentiment. I just think unless we see something catastrophic, major, we're talking like, I, you know, a massive spike of like 100,000 deaths like a day from COVID, mm. um, something or even 50,000, something Jurassic. Right, right. Like that. I, I just think the state legislatures and, you know, we're seeing – with the, the NBA, they're just going to take the chance and do the season. Because look at what, we, look what we're doing here. Like, in the state we live in, New Mexico, the cases are at an all-time high here. And yet compared to, you know, May and um, June and July, you know, the governor was putting restrictions on, you know, for cases that were, like, in the 300 range. And now we're in the 1,000 range, and yet there's no there's minimal restrictions. Like, we can still, we can still dine in a restaurant inside. Um there, so we're not in a total lockdown. So I think even the most strictest governors, which we do have one here um, with Michelle Lujan Grisham, I think they're kind of at the behest of making money. I think that's what it comes down to, whether you agree with it or not. It comes down to you know these businesses, which the NBA is a business, and in terms of these teams, there's a business. They're they're just going to run the season, and I think again, unless we see something massive. I think, you know, the capacity of fans are not going to be affected. Am I nervous about that? I am. It's concerning to me. At the same time, um, I've seen, like you you mentioned, Matt, with college football, high school football, um, and even, you know, something, you know, in other entertainment mediums, like, you know, going to a movie um, or, you know, if you want to go into, like, the pro wrestling world, they've had fans at their um, facility, um, in, in Jacksonville, Florida, for about a few months now, um, at limited capacity, and we, there hasn't been any kind of a COVID outbreak as of this recording. So, I think overall, in terms of your line of thinking, Matt, it's probably going to lean in your direction. However, this virus is just so unpredictable that it's kind of at an unknown. I will say, so far, like we're like in November, and the, the number of deaths, I think, thank goodness, we haven't seen a incredible spike. Um, 
like several people have said, like any death from this is, is horrible. Um, at the same time, I think there has been an, an improvement. So that's good as well. People are actually getting treated for this virus instead of, you know, doctors being at a standstill, not knowing what to do. Um, however, it's still an unpredictable situation. And I, I just wonder, the NBA was showing a lot of caution um, when this pandemic started. I think now we're starting to see where um, money is is becoming more and more of a factor. And it, it's just a massive question mark in terms of, as you open it up to more fans, do you increase the, the risk to fans' safety? Uh, that's that's what I'm worried about. But at the same time, Matt, I think you bring up a, a good point. At some point, we, in terms of just our economy, in terms of just every single league, it's just not sustainable just to shut down. And, and in a bubble, creating a bubble with all all the teams involved, it's it's impossible. Um, you just can't do it. So we're, we're going to see what happens. But to say that uh, I'm not nervous would be a lie. <laughs> I'm concerned for sure. Understandable. Yeah, I agree with just about everything you said just there. I don't have too much to add. You're right. I mean, lockdowns inherently are a temporary solution in in a world that has an economy, relies on an economy. You can't do lockdowns forever. I mean, just just inherently. Otherwise, there's there's death on that end of the spectrum as well. It just takes longer to get to. Um, And, you know, speaking more specifically to the NBA, Sure. The reality is it, it costs them a lot for to do the bubble as well, right? just to go use the Orlando site that they used for that bubble. Uh, I think it was $150 million they spent just to use that area. Um, so, so there's a lot of overhead in kind of this, this bubble scenario as well. So, uh, so just strictly from an economic standpoint, um, yeah, there, there are things – that even a league that makes billions per year like the NBA does needs to be concerned about uh, and, and keep an eye on in order to keep operations running. And, and of course, yes, it's, it's basketball, it's, it's sports. I do think it is very important to society. Um, culturally speaking, it's something that brings us together, which is something I, I think we could all use more of now, g- getting together in uh, you know, friendly, fun ways, uh, of course, safely, you know, at a, at a good capacity. Um, but I, I definitely think, you know, from, from my point of view, and obviously this is, this is something that, you know, might be an unpopular take, but, but I do think, you know, if, if you're 65 and you have preconditions, probably don't go to an arena game, you know, whether that's hockey or basketball, things like that. Um, you know, of course, personal choice. I'm, I'm all about personal freedom. And if, you know, you're, you're bummed and, um, you know, you, you just can't imagine living without that. I respect your right to, uh, take on the risk as well. Uh, but I think, I think the NBA, um, can kind of, and, you know, maybe from a societal standpoint as well, we can, we're at a point now where, the general public knows so much about this virus just just from watching the news. Um, maybe not all of it is correct, but but I do think there's a general knowledge that hey, this is really contagious. Hey, this could be fatal. Hey, your chances are higher if you meet these check marks and you have these preconditions. Um, to where I think we can say as a society, like hey, there is some onus on you 
be aware. You know, I'm sure when the NBA is selling arena tickets, they're going to have a disclaimer like, hey, there's some inherent risk of being indoors for this long that you could contract coronavirus. We can't guarantee that you're not going to get it. Um, we can't 100% guarantee your safety. And, and honestly, I, I'm okay with putting the personal responsibility on people. Obviously, I don't. I don't want something, some crazy situation like hospitals all of a sudden getting overrun or things like that from just having NBA games. But, um, but that that's going to be an interesting thing about 2021 overall. I mean, even outside the scope of basketball, just learning how do we make baby steps to safely get back towards quote unquote normal life or whatever you want to say. Um, so definitely this looking at, um, arena events and venues, this is going to be a big part of that for sure. And I want to get into the actual basketball side of this because yeah. uh, two of our guests that um, they're experts um, in the uh, WNBA side of things um, really had a good point. And specifically, uh, Christina Williams, um, she had an awesome point about this. Like the WNBA players play year round, like the majority of them do. So mm. to hear a LeBron James complain, and we can just get to it now since we're talking about it. If you don't mind. <laughs> sure. Um, Fire away. I, I, I just feel it's pretty ridiculous. Like, and he yeah. stays in shape year round. Like you have what? We, I think we talked about it. he has like what a $2 million workout facility. Like he's not out of shape. So he's in shape. And also he, he won't be playing these games anyway. And he's LeBron. He doesn't even have to show up to the arena. For the games he's not playing at, to be honest, um, when the season starts, mm-hmm. um, he'll be probably obligated to play, you know, the not obligated, but pushed to playing the season opener and probably Christmas Day um, if they're whatever schedule they have. But after that, he's probably going to get like a good rest for a month. He'll p- play minimal minutes. And for the first, I don't know, month of this season, he's going to take it easy. So I don't his. uh I don't know, anger towards the season starting in December. I find. Yeah, let's set this up. Yeah, please do. You read the tweet. Yeah. Yeah, he posted on Instagram. uh, I believe it was an Instagram story of his where he posted, I I believe it was a a shot he had taken of ESPN announcing the 72 game season had been finalized starting December 22nd and basically just put a shaking my head emoji. Um, or, or a facepalm, rather, excuse me, um, emoji over that uh, to, I guess, express his disgust that he's going to have to play basketball again. Um, so uh, I guess you can tell by my sarcasm there how I feel about that as well. Um, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is what do you think this does to his legacy? Because Something that that I've always liked about LeBron is his durability. I, I think it's one of his his best talking points as the case for LeBron James, the greatest of all time, or whatever. Uh, and and one of the things that's always been impressive is through the 2010s, there was nearly always every every year but one um, a finals appearance, and then many times there there was world basketball or Olympic basketball. So very, very little rest time. Um, we talked about this last week that, that the NBA basically got an offseason from March until July. 
So there, there was some rest time there. I'm sure all of them were training and staying in shape, but there was rest from basketball. What, true. Is this something that you see as like a black mark that he is, you know, complaining about the start of the season? I mean, we know, we know how fanboys and, and people who don't like LeBron anyway are going to react, but you know, I, I'm someone, I, I say this almost every week that I, I love LeBron James on the court. I, I've defended him in many cases in the past. And for me, this is another thing that is making it harder and harder for me to defend LeBron. How do you perceive this? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, with players, things that are held against them are usually on court, on the court incidents. So it's, it's, it's funny because I'll, I'll mention a personal story. My girlfriend is not a sports fan, and so she knew who LeBron James was but had little um, reference in terms of, what, as a player, what he did on the court. And mm. one of the first um, times I showed her LeBron James highlights, it was him flopping. And now every time I mention LeBron James, <laughs> she, she pretty much mentions he's a huge flopper. So I guess my point is is that I think – on-the-court actions are going to hurt him more than just him complaining about the season starting. I get it. I get where you're mm. coming from, but gotcha. I think it's kind of like the Isaiah situation, you know, in terms of when we talked about it with um, Zach um, Levitt, um, because you listened to our interview in our archives, in terms of, you know, when he walked off the court um, against the Chicago series, like, he was labeled a bad guy, and Isaiah's labeled as, like, this phony person. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Isaiah Thomas is one of the greatest point guards ever, um, in terms of their respect, he, he kind of on the court, there's there's some angst against him. And I think overall, LeBron is kind of the opposite. He's the true statesman. And I think somebody like a Kobe, I think really until he retired, um, there was some really venom against him. There was a lot of media members that had a mm-hmm. axe to grind against Kobe. And I think with LeBron, I don't really see that except Skip Bayless, who hates his guts. Um, other than that, I don't particularly think him complaining or belly aching on Twitter is going to hurt his legacy. But I do think like, you know, on the court, if I don't know if he's obsessively complaining or, or he sitting does something. On bench. Yeah, that's true. Sitting out that that's going to hurt him because even mm-hmm. with Tim Duncan's a good example of, you know, how many times you hear people, Hey, Tim Duncan's a cryberry in terms of him complaining about to the refs about calls. I mean, that is a thing yeah. that's on his legacy. So for hardcore basketball fans. So I think Twitter, I think it's kind of irrelevant to be honest. I think it's stupid. I don't get why he's complaining because he's going to say, so whoops, he do like, <laughs> I think for, for me, he should be concerned maybe for like a first year rookie in the league. And, and this is something we can talk about now. Um, if you want to kind of explain this, um, you, this is another topic that um, I find very interesting. You brought to my attention was about these escrows and about how I believe it's for this season. Is that right? Um, in terms this of season the... and next, I believe. Okay. Got it. So from this tweet from Bobby Marks, it explains how um, it would be a, I guess, I don't, I don't, I'm not a financial person, but basically there's going to be a decrease in terms of Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, um, in terms of their top salary. Um, so, for instance, it says here a Steph Curry would lose $43 million. He, excuse me, Steph Curry, who makes $43 million, would decrease to $35.3 million. 
Um, LeBron would start from you know 39.2 million and decrease to 32.2 million, and Kawhi Leonard, um, 34.4 million to uh, 28.2 million, uh, decreasing pretty significantly. So they would experience a pay bump. I, I want to ask you: Is this for all the players in the league, or just the top league earners in the league? Um, this is across the board. The, the tweet okay. that uh, you and I looked at was kind of showing the examples that you, that you okay. just mentioned there of okay. how that relates to top salaries in the league. Uh, and, you know, this is in line with those projections that you and I were talking about last week about what the league stands to lose with, for one thing, a shorter season. For another thing, those arena vacancies that are going to happen one way or another, even if they are. 50% capacity. We know those vacancies are happening. So, um, so 18%, and I believe, and forgive me if I'm wrong listeners, but I believe that is for the next two seasons that that, that will apply. So they okay. can kind of see how they bounce back after this season. You know, of course, hopefully 2021 to 2022 season, will have the full 82 games and, Hopefully things will look great enough that we can have 75 plus percent capacity for these arenas. Um, But that is that is just kind of, you know, for you guys to have an idea of what the salary hits are. One thing that I want to kind of follow back on and kind of get your thoughts on is, you know, last week we talked about there there really was it seemed like a a voice among the players. and, And I'm not sure exactly who or how many players you know, we we mentioned LeBron James kind of being upset about such a quick turnover time into the next season. Um, but really, after our episode aired last week, uh, after that came out on Monday, it was an, about a day or two until the tweets that I sent you came out. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really fast that it was, you know, wham, bam. Hello. We're signed into this this new season. So do you think that it's, it's just as as simple as, you know, what we talked about last week as once the players heard the potential financial impacts and maybe what the financial escrow would look like comparatively when you think of how that would be applied to a 50 game season and starting later and potentially less TV revenue, if they ran into the Olympics, do you think it's simply just a matter of money, just a follow the money type issue? I think it's it's a follow the money issue, and I think I personally maybe I'm looking too much into it, but I think it, it plays into why LeBron didn't want this season to start. I think it's it's just I don't know. It's I think it's just a money situation, honestly, that kind of persuaded him. And I think overall, if you take a look at the health of the league, there's there's no getting around to it. These players are going to have to take a pay cut somewhere. Um, oh yeah, just just through the let's just say things were normal that the, the, the China situation alone hurt them significantly. And quite honestly, you take a look at the ratings, they have taken a massive hit. So the, whatever I, I, it doesn't come to my mind now, but the next negotiations for the CBA, um, mm-hmm. in my mind, they're going to take a massive hit. It's just owners. Inevitable. as well. The donors too. Um, and, but you know, the players always want more money and it, it, the days of like the skyrocketing, you know, TV contracts and the players just getting these huge salaries are going to be over. I mean, they're still going to make a decent amount of money. I mean, they're not going to be, I mean, I mean, the WNBA would kill to have, you know, the contract the NBA 
has now. Um, so I don't I don't think we're going to see a, a massive significant decrease. But this idea where they're going to think they're going to proceed as normal, I, I find pretty laughable. I, I think even let's just say there's a vaccine tomorrow. I mean, just through last season alone, they're going to feel the effects of that. And just by starting this season ink by Christmas and ending it the you know during an Olympic year, they're gonna just gonna take a massive hit. And I would say even from years to come, even if there is a vaccine, I mean, there's gonna be fans who are gonna be unsafe going to an arena. That's just the case. And they're gonna really take some heat from that. So I think overall there's just a paradigm shift in the league that I think the players are just gonna have to get used to. Another thing that I wanted to mention, and, and the, the NBA season, with this deal in place, uh, as, they, as they finalize this, um, they intend to finish the season before the Olympics start. Um, gotcha. So, so there won't be any overlap in the finals. Is, um, that, that's why this 72 game starting in, in Christmas was the best case scenario. However, to do that, I think we're going to lose out on potentially the week break that we get in the all-star game. And that's not official. I haven't confirmed that, but that would be my guess is they have to make up some time to get this season done quickly. Cause we're, we're talking about a season that normally is end of October until June. Right. And mm. now it's compressed from Christmas week into maybe the very, very end of June. So, so that gives you a couple extra weeks at the end of June there but overall, you can see how that is that is very compressed, and we're still getting 72 games. Do you think that, you know, given the short turnaround and given that you may have more back-to-backs, at least compared to how things were in 2018, you know, when, when they kind of started spacing games out a little bit more for these players and having less frequent back-to-backs, do you think we're going to, you know, we've we've had, it's been a narrative in the NBA. We've had three of the last six finals have been heavily impacted by injuries, unfortunately. And it's just just bad luck, just, just the way it's been, unfortunately. Sure. Uh, do you think we're going to have added concern? Do, do we need to have added concern about injuries this season because of all that? I think yes. At the same time, since there's 72 games, there's room to play with with you know, players sitting, I think that's going to be a thing or limiting their minutes. And I think also too, in years past, that would be a massive controversy for, we've talked about this in terms of fans paying their hard earned money, but at the same time, it's decreased capacity. So it's a situation in which that's becoming less of a factor. So overall, I think you're going to see just a lot of players just, willing to sit and conserve their body um, for mm. the home stretch. And remember too, you mentioned the Olympic year too. I mean, a lot of these guys want to play in the Olympics and even let's say the big, you know, the top elite players sit out. I mean, even your third, you know, third team NBA players, I mean, they're going to be conserving energy too. It's going to be a huge effect. I mean, they have to consider the Olympics, even if LeBron, Kawhi, you know, Paul George, you know, you put any player you want as you go down in terms of the top 30 players of the league, they're all going to be sitting. So I mm-hmm. think that's, that's going to be a factor. I think also another thing too, it could work in reverse. You mentioned, you know, the majority of the league hasn't played basketball since what March or late February. Um, yeah. So it could work in the opposite direction in which, okay, now you're ramping up for an intense season. 
that could play a factor too in terms of how their body's going to hold up. We really don't know. This is an unpredictable situation. Sure. I mean, it could work in terms of, you know, maybe the majority of the league gets rested and maybe you see more players that would normally sit play more t- minutes in the game. I mean, we just don't know. Or it could work in the opposite direction. So it, it's a very unpredictable situation that I, I don't really have a clear um, answer on, to be honest. I could see it going either way. Mm-hmm. So load management may be a returning storyline in yeah. the NBA. I mean, it's been that way really since Kawhi Leonard um, in his time in San Antonio. So, so it's, you know, it wouldn't surprise me as well if, uh, especially if there's more back-to-backs, we see guys like Kawhi for one, Joel Embiid, um, you know, guys that have had, had this injury history um, taking, taking nights off. Like you said, yeah, I, I think that will be, a revolving storyline. Did you have anything else on the the framework of the season or should we get to Drew Holiday? Yeah, let's get to Drew Holiday and explain what's going on with him um, because we mentioned it with our uh, Pelicans insider that, you know, he was a guy that was somewhat on, on the training block. And here's another tweet from Sham Sherna, um, again, from the Athletic and the Stadium. Um, the New Orleans Pelicans are opening discussing star Drew Holiday and trade talks and several contending teams are pursuing. Uh, what do you make of this? Is this a move to... Uh, just make a best trade deal, or this is a situation in which he doesn't fit on this team with Zion and Brandon Ingram, for that matter. Yeah, he's he's kind of uh, in a class of his own on that Pelicans team. He he's just at a different phase of his career than everyone else on that team. And unless you want to keep him there for his veteran leadership, which you already you do have JJ Redick on that squad still. Uh, so, so I don't know that you need both Reddick and Drew Holiday. It wouldn't surprise me if actually both of those guys, um, maybe were off that roster. Um, but with the contract concerns and the, and the cap concerns, things like that with Drew Holiday, I could see, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's obvious now they are at least hearing offers. Um, but I, I, I like Drew Holiday, very serviceable guard. He's not, you know, your top end elite level guard, but he's a guy that can can guard both the point guard and the shooting guard. He's a very accurate shooter. Uh, he can he can score in bunches. When when I had him on my my fantasy basketball team, I, I was very pleased with um, with his stat lines from night to night. So very consistent veteran presence, um, and he's he's kind of in that phase, you know, when you're in your early 30s as as a guard, it's, you know, you, you've got a lot of miles on the tire, so to speak, in the NBA typically. Uh, we are seeing careers, of course, being lengthened with changes in, in training, conditioning, sports science, et cetera. Uh, but this is kind of time where if Drew Holiday wants to be on, on a legitimate contender, he probably needs to be off this Pelicans roster um, and not to say that the Pelicans won't complete, compete for a playoff spot. They certainly will. But I don't think anyone would be predicting them to be, you know, a top four seed in the West this upcoming year. He's he's a guy that can fit on a lot of rosters. You just have to find uh, the cap space to fit him in there. Um, so, you know, one thing I, I'm wondering is if something um, comes of the noise that we're hearing about James Harden to Philadelphia that we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. It's, 
interesting to think that the, the, the Pelicans may be a team on the receiving end of some salary cap. Um, like, for example, if they want an even more veteran presence with someone like an Al Horford, um, you know, you, you could argue that eats up way too much contract space for what they're trying to do. But if, if they get some awesome picks out of it, I think the Pelicans may be in a spot where they are, they're down for being that kind of middleman team in a, in a three team trade. Um, but of course, you know, the, the, the news we've heard is very vague that just contenders are interested. Um, so I don't know, do you, do you have any hypothetical thoughts as to where he'd go or, or just what are your general thoughts on Drew Holiday? Do you kind of agree with me about kind of what I summarized there about him? Yeah, I, I think I pretty much agree with you, man. I think it's hard just because there's going to be a, a tons of pressure on this team. And I think it goes back to even with Anthony Davis, right? Like, you know, you, if you're just that fan base, you see Anthony Davis win a title with the Lakers and him being a player in a pivotal role and the Pelicans not even getting close to extracting the potential of what he can do. And mm-hmm. I just think with these roster moves, you're going to see dramatic changes to center the team around Zion. And it personally, I think we've talked about Zion's weight. I think you and I are pretty high on him, but the the weight is an issue. And I think uh, with the Pelicans, I really do think they are hinging their bets on Zion being their franchise player. And if, you know, Drew Holiday and I think Brandon Ingram, unfortunately, he's in this category too. Um, If the Pelicans struggle, they're they're just going to make changes around Zion. I think it's it's going to be an issue for this franchise uh, that they're all in on this guy, and I think they're going to remold the team to, to fit around what what Zion can do. And I think with Drew Holiday, they're they're going to be willing to to ship him. Um, like you said, they have a veteran, you know, guard point guard already with JJ Redick. Um, even though I think his strengths are more in terms of scoring rather than just being a playmaker. Um, right. Play, uh, playmaker point guard on a team, I think he they're going to get rid of Drew Holiday. I really do. Do I think it's the wisest move? I don't think so. I think just because the sample size of Zion, I mean, he was hurt the majority of the year. We had the pandemic. Um, so you, we couldn't really see what he could really do. Um, so I think it's a bit premature. However, I think that's going to be the MO. And I think even let's just say Zion plays, you know, 50% of the games and um, – the Pelicans struggle, and I think even if Brandon Ingram's like the leading scorer and he gets another All Star appearance, I I think if there's a trade move they make for him to get other players, they're gonna do it. Um, mm. I think that's just how desperate they are in this guy. But I could be wrong. I hope I hope I'm I hope I'm incorrect. I hope you know they have a better game plan. But I just think they're really they're coddling and protecting Zion at all cost. Yeah, and you could also argue on the other hand that. You know, it's where this team is right now. You know, if if you agree with the notion that I mentioned that, you know, probably not a top four seed in the West, you could argue it's better for Zion's development in some ways to have less pieces around him. You know, I'm thinking of like how LeBron developed in Cleveland. Of course, we I don't think we project Zion to be exactly like on LeBron's trajectory maybe, but, but he is someone who's mentioned as a potential next face of the league type of player, generational talent. Um, so 
I think so, sometimes less is more when you're a developing team. And it, it may just be, you know, that Drew Holiday right now is is like a luxury vehicle that, that you don't need right now to get the job done. You know, you're you're a father with three little ones and you don't really need your your Corvette. I don't know, probably bad analogy there, right. but, no. <laughs> but I'm going with it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, we'll ha- we'll just have to, you know, wait and see what happens. I, and I think what's what's going to be really compelling now is the drafts in like two weeks, <laughs> and then we have the season starting. So there there's going to be some very the moves that we're going to see is going to be very compelling, uh, just because the you know this off season is just so uh, cramped together, and there's no summer league. And I, I, the point is, is just how does Tyson with you holiday? The, the, the normal moves that you would make, it's thrown out the window. So um, under normal circumstances, this would probably be handled already. But just due to the pandemic, um, things are really different. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I, I, it's compelling to watch because um, we're seeing the NBA thrown a curveball. And just to see the owners and players and uh, general managers and coaches adapt, um, it's going to be really compelling to watch. Yeah, and just speaking, you know, you allude to the draft. I mean, just with how little we know about these prospects, I mean, unless you are really yeah. diehard college basketball fans, and even then you didn't get to see the sample size that we get to see every year with March Madness, obviously, with that that not happening. So it's it's going to be, you know, it's I think it's a little disappointing that you don't get that buildup in, in some ways and you don't establish that connection moving into the draft Uh, Like I would expect lower ratings for this year's NBA draft because of that. I mean, unless there's really just nothing else on. Um, But I I would also expect that during the season, it's going to be a lot of fun to have these, these rookies who develop into nice serviceable surprises. You know, we, everyone talks about this being a weaker draft class, but you could still get players that, you know, maybe we get some pleasant surprises like we got with, say like a Tyler hero this year where someone we that's a relative unknown and in many ways uh, a forced unknown because of what happened becomes, you know, a household name or, or maybe at least uh, someone that the, the fan base falls in love with, you know, like, like a Tyler hero or like a Fred Van Vliet, someone, someone like that. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's like you said, there, there's so many, moving parts that are moving a lot faster. So it's going to be a really interesting off season. And with that, you know, we're going to have to do our homework a little quicker and we're going to be, we're going to have plenty of content each week to, to continue updating you guys on. So I I definitely look forward to that as, as a podcaster for sure. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add Matt before we uh, bounce for this week? Man, I I can't think of anything else. I think we're good. I think we've covered the major headlines. As always, we appreciate your guys' feedback. We are uh, you can email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. You can check us out. We have a Facebook page, Hoopsology Podcast. We have a Twitter account and an Instagram account at hoopsologypod. So reach out, uh, check out our feed if if you want. Um, our updates and thoughts and things like that. Just a good general feed on basketball overall to follow. Um, And that's all I got, man. 
Yeah, uh, you mentioned it, Matt. Lots of great content. I mean, we can recap. It goes back to um, our Last Dance uh, yes. episode of recaps. Uh, we have interviews with, uh, if you're local to the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, um, with Van Tate, um, describing what he was going through when the pandemic first started, to interviews uh, fairly recently recapping the season from um, top-profile NBA teams. So we have Kareth Burke um, from... NBA, uh, excuse me, NBC Sports um, in the Golden State area. Uh, we have writers covering the Pelicans, uh, writers covering the Denver Nuggets, the Chicago Bulls. Um, we have our most recent interviews with Ben Lyons, who hosted, hosted NBA uh, TV's GM School, and um, Emmy Award-winning director um, Zach Levitt, who directed some of your favorite documentaries on NBA TV um, and on um, ESPN for the 30 for 30 series. So please go check that out, um, especially the election is over. If you just need a break, um, just to get yes. through some great content, <laughs> uh, check those interviews out uh, because uh, they'll be uh, for your listening pleasure for sure. So for uh, Matt Thomas, I am Justin Goodrum. Um, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll see you next time. Peace.